Well, good morning, church. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Titus 1. Now, if you don't have your Bible, I've also printed out at Officeworks a bunch of handouts with just the passage we'll be going through today. Um, And if you don't have your Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of those handouts because we're going to be following the text pretty closely, and I believe it'll be helpful for you to follow along. So starting from Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we begin our exposition of Titus today, that you will open our hearts to the truth of your word. We realize that as we begin to preach from an entire book of the Bible, that there will come topics of contention and disagreement among the body of believers. And that as preachers of your word, we may prefer sometimes to set those things aside to save face. But Lord, over the next month, as we attempt to preach the full counsel of God, I pray for wisdom and care for those of us who preach, that we may be faithful in expositing your word. And I pray for the sheep here today, that we may be stirred on in our knowledge of the truth and grow in our godliness by your word. Because your son has accomplished our salvation. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Now, before we begin our exposition, it'll be helpful to know that Paul's letters to Titus was written likely in the 60s AD. Um, But as you read through Acts, it's actually very difficult to, to see where this letter fits in the chronology of Paul. And most scholars will suggest that it was written somewhere between Paul's first imprisonment, which is accounted in Acts 28, and his second imprisonment where he wrote to Timothy and ended in his death. Now, throughout the time between these two periods, Paul's life consisted from moving place to place and telling people about the good news of the gospel. The news that Jesus had changed Paul's life, that Jesus had died a death that atoned for the sins of those who would believe in him, and that he rose again and is alive. And as Paul and others evangelized, people came to faith in Christ. And then when these people came to faith, what would happen is that they would be established in different congregations. And that is why on the island of Crete, where Titus is stationed, there are congregations of believers scattered throughout. Now, a few of us here have been to Crete, I believe, so we might know more than I know. 
But this island is the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean, and it is the largest of the Greek islands. And on this island, churches have been established by Paul's evangelism and by the other apostles' evangelism. And in this letter, Paul is writing to Titus, who he has left in charge in Crete. And he's hoping to encourage Titus to give oversight to these believers on Crete that will help them withstand the many challenges that they're facing. Indeed, in the relatively small time these churches have been established, the believers are already being confronted with people teaching false doctrines. And we will see that these false teachers are disrupting the fellowship in the churches in Crete. And so it is imperative that Titus is aware of this and also knows what to do about it. As Alistair Begg says, the framework of the letter to Titus is moral and doctrinal confusion. And into the moral turpitude, the believers in Crete are to live lives of self-control. And into the doctrinal morass, they are to come with absolute clarity in their understanding of Christian doctrine. And if that doesn't sound exactly like our situation in the church today, I don't know what does. So with that background, let's begin our exposition. Starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul firstly identifies himself as a servant of God, which may better be translated a slave of God, one whom has been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, one who is in willing bondage to God, one who is entire life is subject to his Lord. He then identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which emphasizes the authority with which he writes. Indeed, in the technical sense that Paul means it here, Paul is one who has been commissioned by Jesus to have authority in the church by the revelation of God's word. And then moving down to verse 4, we read, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, There is little known about the man Titus, but Paul refers to him with warm affection as his true child, which may mean that Titus was actually saved through Paul's evangelism. And then these two men share a common faith, one that does not require Titus to innovate and get creative with and go off on a tangent here, but one that requires Titus to be faithful and to propagate the word that he has heard. Coming back to verse 1. We see that Paul labours for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Here we see that all of Paul's work and his writing of this letter is for the church. Now we see four descriptions of the church, I believe, in the first three verses of Titus. And it's going to be helpful for us to look through these um, different characteristics of the church in turn. Keeping in mind that these characteristics that I'm about to share, they're not just true of some universal church or the church triumphant in heaven, they are also true of the local assembly of believers. Those who are scattered throughout Crete, those who are scattered throughout Melbourne. These are true of our local assembly. So these four characteristics I will now present are true of you. Firstly, the church are an elect people. Again in verse 1, we see that all of Paul's work is for the sake of the faith of God's elect We see here that Paul writes to promote saving faith in the church in Crete. He wants believers to be grounded in this faith. And a careful study of Paul's letters reveals that believers are those who are chosen by God apart from any merit of their own, any good work of their own. In Ephesians 1, 4-5, Paul says God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. But perhaps Jesus is even clearer when he says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 2, where he says, the Father permitted the Son to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So we see that this people, the elect, have been given by God the Father to his Son Jesus in eternity past. And it is for their sake, the sake of their coming to the faith, the sake of their being saved, that Paul preaches. So as a church, firstly, we are God's elect. Secondly, we also see that Paul preaches not just so that they become saved, but they become increasingly confirmed in their faith. That is why he says in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This is our second trait. The church is a maturing people. Paul knows that to be a disciple means to be a student of Christ. Now, the knowledge of the truth here may refer to what John Stott believes as their knowledge of God's name and God's attributes and God's character. Or it may more broadly um, mean, as Daniel Doriani suggests, just the full doctrine, the full kind of body of Christian doctrine. Either way, this would be important to those believers in Crete because of the false teachers we're going to hear about next week from Nathan Mann. And how important is it for us today? For us not to just know what we believe, but also why we believe it. And then how can we gain this knowledge anywhere apart from the Word of God? In our own private study of the Word of God and in sitting under faithful, sound preaching and expositing of its truths. That is where we will find this truth. Because... It is true because it has been given to us by God. And as Paul says in verse 2, God never lies. This attribute of God tells us that everything we find in the Word of God, we can trust as the inerrant God-breathed Word. And my friends, those of us who believe that if someone's just to come to this understanding of doctrine, that they're going to become puffed up, proud and arrogant and a Pharisee, Paul couldn't disagree more. Rather, at the end of verse 1, he says, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, or as the NIV translates, which leads to godliness. So Paul sees the former, the knowledge of the truth, to actually lead to the latter, godliness. It is as he states in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So it is the mind that is the key to new living. And this, my friends, is the doctrine of sanctification, that the child of God, once they are saved, they will increasingly live a godly life. According to Ephesians 1.4, it is the very reason for our election. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And how is Paul saying that we can do this? Through God's truth. Tim Chester writes on this verse, As our faith grows in knowledge, so we will grow in godliness. The more we understand what God has done for us in Christ, the more we will love Him and live for Him. Now, we must not confuse the two doctrines here. There is the doctrine of salvation, 
which means that we are saved at the moment that we believe, apart from any good thing that we do. It is completely by Christ that we are saved. It is nothing to do with us. But then the evidence that someone has actually been saved and that their profession of faith is actually genuine is by the fruit that it produces in their lives. That is what sanctification is. That is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. It is why James says in James 2.17 that faith without works is dead. So Paul says our godliness will be a fruit of our faith. And then he adds another fruit of our faith in verse 2, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. This is the third characteristic. It is a blessing that comes through our faith and through our sanctification. It is the assurance that we will inherit eternal life. The church, we as the church are an assured people. The Greek word for in at the beginning of verse 2 can also be translated supported upon or resting upon. So what we find here is a connection between our faith and our sanctification and then our hope of eternal life. As Daniel Doriani again says, our assurance here is ground on God's word and it is confirmed by our changed lives. So truth and godliness are the grounds for our assurance that we will reach eternal life. But the way Paul has written it here means that the equation can swap as well so that our assurance can lead to truth and godliness. Again, Doriani, knowing that we are safe for eternity in Christ is the key to unlocking our desire both to know his word better and to live more fervently for him. R.C. Sproul expands on this point when he writes, the key to Christian fruitfulness the key to manifesting a productive Christian life is to have a life that is founded solidly on the assurance of one's salvation in Christ. The unsure Christian is the Christian who lacks stability in his or her faith. The unsure Christian is tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. The unsure Christian is easy prey for the assault of Satan who does everything in his malevolent power to undermine the Christian's confidence in Christ. A Christian who lacks such confidence can easily become trapped in insecurity and may lack boldness to venture out into the domain of a fallen world armed with the whole armour of God. Now, let me briefly issue a warning as well. This doctrine of assurance, which is very precious and beautiful and wonderful, it is not for the unconverted. Paul has revealed that this is specifically for the elect, for those who have shown evidence of a true salvation. So we can't go around telling people who have stepped up in an altar call and prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into their heart and then gone and lived a life of filth and sin again that they can have this assurance. But to the elect, Paul says, you can be assured of your eternal life. And in this, this passage here, I believe he gives three different pillars that ground this doctrine of assurance. Firstly, the first pillar is God's promise. In verse 2, we have assurance of eternal life because God, who never lies, promised. So we can rest in the promises of God as the church. God cannot lie. God's word does not change. He who tells us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus. And he who constantly in Scripture promises that he will not depart from us. No more eloquently and certainly is this put than by our Saviour Jesus in John 10, 
27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then secondly, the second pillar, our assurance is based on God's plan. Continuing in verse 2, Paul says, God promised eternal life before the ages began. So who did he promise this eternal life to before the ages began? Who was there but the Trinity? He promised it to his son, to Jesus Christ, before the heavens and the earth, that this covenant of redemption would be fulfilled. And that involved our salvation. John Flavel, one of my, potentially one of my favorite Puritans, imagines the conversation in eternity past between the father and son this way. The father says, and I've tried to modernize some of the language, but bear with me. My son, this is the father, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? To which Jesus responds, O my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their bills, that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debts. The father responds, but my son, if if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. To which Christ finally replies, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And because of this beautiful exchange, we can have what Paul says in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. And finally, our assurance comes from proclamation. In verse 3, Paul says, And at the proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. So the proclamation of God's word gives assurance to believers, particularly the preaching of the gospel, that Jesus lived a perfect life and died an atoning death and rose on the third day and ascended into heaven. As this word of God is preached, believers are assured of their eternal security. So the church are an assured people. And now the final characteristic of the church I see here is what Paul says in verse 1. The elect are said to be God's elect. And as verse 3 says, the word Paul has been given has been entrusted to him by the command of God. And this is such a timely and important point. This will colour how we read the qualifications of the elder later on. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy 
3.14 if you have your Bibles. We'll get a bit more clarity about what this means. Paul says to Timothy, who is another protege in a similar position to Titus, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As Paul Washer says, Paul is being very Hebrew here. He's piling one term on top of another so that we understand a very important truth that God is the owner of his church. It is God's church. It is not the pastor's church. It is not the elder's church. It is not the congregation's church. It is not the government's church. It's not society's church. It is God's church. This same theme is picked up in Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verse 28, where he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the people, the sheep, us, to whom do we belong? We belong to God and we belong to God by right of our creation because he created us and we belong to God by right of redemption. You read Exodus 20 verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is what Christ has done for the church. We belong to God by right of creation and by right of redemption through the blood of Christ. So then before we turn to verse 5 and to the qualifications of the elder, we must ask, what is the elder? What is the pastor? And what we see here is that he is a shepherd. He is an overseer. He feeds, he guards, he protects the church. Nowhere in the pastoral epistles or even in the wider biblical account is the pastor said that he needs to be funny. He needs to be clever. He needs to be up with the latest trends. He is called to be biblical and to lead the church of God only with what accords to what has been written by God in his word. That is why we read in verse 9 that pastors must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Because he is, as verse 7 says, God's steward. And this is why one of the qualifications mentioned in verse 6 is that his children are not charged with debauchery or insubordination. Again, Paul elaborates on this in his similar list of qualifications he gives to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3, 4-5, speaking of the elder, he says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So what Paul is saying is the elder must manage his own house well, those under his care, so that he can be proven to look after the household of God. Church, what I'm getting at here is that God is the one Lord and master of his house. And we must must, must believe that. Aim and I have just found a rental um, that we're going to move into when we're married, but we're able to move a bit of furniture in and different things like that, see where we want things, putting the fairy lights up. It's very exciting. But if you were to come into our house and you start telling us what's what, you start moving the table somewhere else, you start taking down the fairy lights, you start ordering us around, 
there will be a sense in which we despise you. That is our house. You have no part of that. Now, Amy and I just got this rental on Friday. (laughs) Think about God. God who has had this house in his heart from an eternity past. Think of how he cares for and protects his house. Another illustration used by Paul Washer to make this point. There is a great king, and this king loves his bride so dearly, and he always dresses his bride in the simplest yet most elegant dress. She needs no audacious colors on her face or wild hairdos. She is simple, she is elegant, pure, beautiful, godly. And one day this king goes on a very long journey, and he calls you in as his steward. And he says to you, I'm going to entrust my bride to you. I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be going away for a very, very long time. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to lay out in a book everything that I want you to oversee and look after. I want nothing changed to what I've put in this book. And then the king leaves. And he's been gone a very, 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 very long time. And then the steward begins to realize that the people of the kingdom are losing interest in the king because they're losing interest in his bride. She's too simple in her white linen. She's not up to the times. She's too boring. And so the steward thinks in his mind, "Ah, I've got it. And he calls in the bride and he takes off her white, elegant linen and he dresses her in something more attractive to the carnal people of the kingdom. He paints her face. And then he parades her up and down the street so that the men of the kingdom can be drawn back into supposed fellowship with the king. Now, let me ask you, what will that king do on the day that he returns? He will kill that steward, probably slowly. You don't need to worry about the the liars, the murderers, the thieves and the prostitutes in his kingdom because it will be better for them on that day than that servant. Now let me ask you, do we see this today? Is this not what happens when pastors and elders and church growth gurus run churches according to the clever plans of man rather than scripture, rather than the clear commands of God? The bride of Christ, her purity and her holiness being stripped from her, and people dressing her up for the appetites of the goats, thinking that they will draw carnal men to God. We must be very, very, very careful with the bride of Christ. Again, as Paul Washer says, we will not build the church according to the changing whims of an ungodly culture, but we will change that ungodly culture by the power of the immutable gospel. Now, let's move on to the next section of the text. Paul begins the body of his letter in verse 5 with a reminder to Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So Paul is saying that the work he began in Crete needs to continue, needs to go further. And then he tells Titus to appoint elders in every town. Now, as one scholar says, The elders are the guardians of the church's doctrine and practice, as well as the spiritual leaders of the church members. 
And we see Paul here refer to three features of the elder. Now, I'm going to quickly go through the first two, and then I'm going to be as gentle as I possibly can with the third. Firstly, there is a plurality of elders. Titus is to appoint elders plural. There is not one person up top that the rest of the church submits to. Secondly, the elders are local. Verse 5 says that there are elders in every town. This means that the elders will have a deep knowledge of their congregation and the issues and the concerns that their congregation go through. And thirdly, it appears here that the elders were exclusively male. In verse 6, the elder is said to be the husband of one wife. And the word aina used here means male. And then this matches with Paul's prohibition in 1 Timothy 2.12, where he has said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And if we look at the life of Jesus, we see him choosing 12 male disciples. Now, this can't be because women lack some kind of spirituality that men have. That is unbiblical, and it is also not what we see in our own lives. Likewise, it can't be that Jesus is capitulating to a sexist culture. He's putting down his own beliefs because of the sexist demands of a culture he's living in. Because Jesus was crucified precisely because he wouldn't yield to the false views of his culture. It seems potentially that this is part of God's established order for humanity going as far back as Genesis 2. That men are to provide servant headship in the family and the church. Overall church, I know that if I was in a Presbyterian or Reformed church, we'd probably spend a lot more time on the first two. But when we read this, when we read especially the pastoral epistles, we must read them very, very, very humbly and ask the Spirit for understanding. And if we come to the conclusion that this exclusion from women in eldership is not for our time today, we must make sure that we have come to that conclusion, not because of the pressures of the society around us, or our own preconceived understandings and beliefs, but because we have been convinced of that in Scripture. We must live our lives according to Scripture. Now, I know I've tarried long on those first five verses, so let's briefly consider the qualifications of an elder in verses 6 to 9. But before we do that, real quick, I'd like to make two notes. Number one, these are very serious qualifications. If someone has a defect in one of these areas, he does not qualify for eldership. Secondly, I know we've already gone over my usual 20-minute sermon, but I encourage us all to be considering these qualifications in light, not just of the elders in our church's lives, but our own lives. Because really what Paul is saying here, or what Paul is describing here, is just a mature Christian. If someone is to be an elder, what Paul is saying is that they need to be a mature Christian. So, firstly, Paul lists qualifications to do with the elder's spiritual competence as a husband and a father. In verse 6, Paul says, He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, to clarify, above reproach does not mean that the elder must be perfect but it does mean that he must not have an outstanding flaw or a recurring sin, especially in the next few qualifications, that would disqualify him. It means there is not something that people can point to as an obvious stumbling block in his life. 
It isn't referring to sin that he may commit periodically or here and there, but something that has laid a hold of his life. Paul then comments that he must be the husband of one wife, which is not to say that an unmarried man is not able to serve as an elder, as his comments on singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 show, but rather he is saying that the elder must be, as the NIV says, faithful to his wife, or put simply, a one-woman man. This will include, as 1 Peter 3, 7 tells us, showing honour to his wife. It is a man who cherishes his wife and treats her with special worth. Paul then states that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. We must here remember that only God can regenerate hearts, even the hearts of kids in Christian homes. But Paul is saying that this man will lead a life that his children, the word here refers to younger children at home, they will generally follow his faith. As Brian Chappelle says, we are not necessarily looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but at the character of the family as a whole. And overall, what this verse reminds us is that the pastor's family must not be neglected for his ministry. That's why I think it's great that we hear Fox and Scout screaming their heads off up the front, not in childcare. The Bible always prioritizes the home life over the work life. Paul then moves on to the elder's spiritual character in verse 7. And he says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, we're going to quickly go through these. Arrogant means self-willed, someone who stubbornly keeps his own opinions and his own rights. Quick-tempered is someone who is quick to hostility, quick to resentment, quick to anger. Its opposites would be kindness and patience. Moving forward, he must not be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, though the Bible doesn't denounce drinking alcohol outright, what we see here is that the elder must not become drunk on alcohol. Violent means the elder should not bully others. And greedy for gain excludes anyone who would go into the ministry for copious material wealth and for their own personal enrichment. Finally, Paul discusses the elder's commitment. Verse 8, an elder must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, we will quickly go through them. Hospitable refers to someone who freely offers encouragement, time, and resources, including his home. And not only to those who share his interests in whether it be theological discussion or cars or whatever he's interested in, but also those who are just simply struggling along in their Christian life. He is hospitable to the broken, to the needy, to the theologically incorrect, to the doctrinally incompetent. He is hospitable to the church of God. A lover of good means he esteems commendable things. Self-controlled means that he must have order of his own life. And upright means his conduct honours God. Holy here means that he has enthusiasm for worship and he must also be disciplined, likely especially in Paul's mind, disciplined in his spiritual life, in his prayer, in his reading of the word. And the final verse before we end, verse 9. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Quoting Paul Washer, it is a dangerous thing to preach for both the preacher and the hearer. It is dangerous for the preacher because if he preaches another gospel, he stands condemned. And if he commits a lesser crime and he misinterprets scripture, whatever he builds upon that bad interpretation will be burned on the day of judgment as wood, hay and stubble. So the preacher must faithfully, faithfully, faithfully preach from the word of God. And what must he preach? Well, I believe scripture gives us a good defense that primarily he should teach on the attributes of God, on the doctrine of humanity, and on the depravity of humanity, and then on the redemptive work of Christ. This is the role of the preacher. Now, I know I've used this illustration probably two or three times before, but in this congregation even, in in our smaller congregation, there are many different people with many different jobs. There are engineers. There are teachers. There are piano teachers. There are beekeepers. Many men and women who work eight to ten hour days. And the pastor's job is that he is the miner of Job 28. And he spends hours and hours that his congregation does not have digging through Scripture, finding precious gems about Christ and about redemption and about God. And he presents these beautiful gems to the people, to the sheep that God has entrusted to him. And I'm not saying that the congregation can just live their lives with a 30-minute sermon every week. Absolutely not. But it is the preacher's duty to put in the work in the Word of God that his congregation does not have the time to do. And this is so that he may faithfully give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke false teaching. Now, next week, Nathan Mann is going to take us through what the false teachers were actually teaching and then Paul's response to them. And that will take us to the end of the first chapter. But for now, why don't we all pray together? Father, we we thank you for your word. I pray that each of us here today are convicted by your words through Paul that we understand who we are as the church, a people who have been elected by you, called to be holy, and those who you will never depart from. May our understanding of our position give us unspeakable peace, especially in the trials of life. And may it convict us to live our lives according to your word. Father, as those of us who preach from the front, May we heed the qualifications you have laid out in your word. May we live and may we strive to live lives above reproach. And may we not teach our own desires, but may we only teach what you have given us in your word. Father, as a church, may you reveal to us how we can better align ourselves with scripture. And may we more and more every day individually as your sheep, Align our lives with your word. 
In your holy name we pray. Amen. That concludes our first sermon of a four-part series on Titus.